Uh, the movie Gravity shows us the later rather than sooner kind of prayer. Uh, in it, there are uh, two astronauts. One of them is played by Sandra Bullock. And there was a, uh, th- they're on a mission to repair the Hubble telescope when an explosion is set off. And Sandra Bullock's character is sent uh, into, uh, untethered out in- into space. And she feels her own mortality. She feels completely alone. She realizes... She is helpless herself, and she has nowhere else to turn. And so she prays. She prays this way. I'm going to die, aren't I, God? I know we're all going to die. We're all going to die, but I'm going to die today. Funny that you ought to know, but the thing is, I'm still scared. I'm really scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you pray for my soul? Or is it too late? I mean, I pray for myself, but I've never prayed in my whole life. Nobody ever taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. Has anyone ever taught you how to pray? We think that because we can talk, we should be able to pray. It feels like something that we we shouldn't need anyone to teach us. And yet, many of us who have uh, made some uh, starts in learning to pray recognize it's it's easy to start. It's just hard to figure out. Uh, We feel our limitations. Uh, We often feel our helplessness in it. In 1952, Albert Einstein was a visiting lecturer at Princeton University. And one of the doctoral students asked him what I thought was a great question. He said, is, uh, uh, is there any, anything left for original uh, uh, dissertation research? Like, what, what is it, what, what's left that's worth that I could pour my life into as a field of study and research. And uh, I thought it was a good question. I, if, if I had met Albert Einstein, I think I just would have been too tongue-tied to know what to, uh, what to say, what do you say to someone with that brilliance. But his, inter- his answer was interesting. He reportedly replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Prayer is something that even the greatest minds are humbled by. We feel our our, uh, helplessness in it. And because it's not something that you can learn about in uh, a lab or a research uh, uh, department. It's not something that you can even just learn from a book or from a sermon. Uh, To some extent, you learn to pray by praying. But... The Bible also teaches us how to pray because just praying alone, just like just talking alone, uh, doesn't always answer the uh, questions that we bring to it. And today we're beginning a series on, on prayer, and as you heard in the announcements, I'm inviting us as a church uh, to a churchwide call to prayer, uh, to, to seek God in a way that perhaps uh, many of us have not not sought God before. 
uh, to make prayer and reliance on God, at least for this month, a, a priority in your life in a way that maybe hasn't been a priority for you. And I'm asking God to teach us not only how to pray, but many of us need to be taught to pray, to, to, be, to, to feel our need of God and our need of reliance on God in prayer. And so I want to encourage you to take extra time to do that this month. We've talked about some of the ways that you can do that, and I would have you just prayerfully reflect on how you might carve out and sacrifice time to spend with God and to seek his face. Uh, Today we're starting with one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, arguably the most famous prayer in the entire world. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It is a a prayer, it, it wasn't a prayer for Jesus. It was a prayer that was given to, uh, to us as his followers. It is a disciple's prayer. And I'm asking that God would uh, use it not only to shape us uh, and teach us how to pray, but to move us to pray. And so I want to encourage you to turn with me uh, uh, and follow along as I, as I read. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. In your pew Bibles, it's on uh, page 761. And if you just keep that out in front of you as I'm speaking this morning, uh, we'll just be walking through verse by verse uh, the, 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 the prayer that Jesus gives us. Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of God. Now, the first lesson the passage teaches me is that prayer is about, is about me pursuing God's agenda, not primarily about him pursuing mine. That Jesus teaches us that prayer is to begin with God and to focus on God and to try to enter into what God is doing in this world, not beginning with me and focusing on me and what I want him to do in my life. Prayer is about me pursuing God's agenda, not him pursuing mine. Now, if I'm very honest, many of my prayers are very similar to the prayers of Sandra Bullock's character in the movie Gravity. They're about me. They don't give enough thought or very much thought at all sometimes to who it is that I am actually praying to. And often it isn't his agenda shaping what it is that I'm praying Many prayers, if you look at them and you reflect on them, are really just self-talk. They are us talking in our head with a veneer of religion on them, but they never really get past me and what I want and how I see this world. And Jesus tells us that prayer is to be different than that. He teaches us that prayers are, first of all, to begin with God. In verse 9, he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. He's telling us, notice first of all, that this is how we are to pray. 
pray like this. He didn't say, pray these words. He is not just giving us words to repeat, but he is, praying, he is giving us a, a, a model, an example of the, the kind of prayer that is to shape our own prayer life. We're to begin our prayers reflecting on who it is that we're praying to and how it is that we are related to him. The disciples here are invited to pray to the God of heaven. And, and it is a picture of God's greatness, his bigness, his, his importance, his glory. But this great and glorious God is to be approached, if you are a disciple of Christ, as a father. It is a word of intimacy. It is an expression of his nearness and his closeness. And so even just in these two simple simple expressions, he is expressing both the the bigness of God and the nearness of God, uh, what theologians call his imminence. And, uh, and, and uh, uh, we are to enter into that uh, both sides of who he is. So pursuing God's agenda in prayer means starting with him. But it also means praying about the things that matter to God. And one of the things that matters to God is his glory and his reputation. The first prayer request in verse 9 is, hallowed be your name. And, and we don't use the word hallowed very often. It's been, it's been kept in here uh, since the King James translation in order to, to main, maintain some, some consistency because it is such a well-known prayer. But the word hallowed means to, to make holy to set apart as holy, to treat as distinct and separate. We're to yearn for God's name or his reputation in this world to be reverenced as utterly unique. It's a longing that people would come to acknowledge God, to to recognize God, to rightly fear God, and and, and to enter into that recognition of who he is. In Isaiah 29, 23, God says, they will sanctify my name, meaning they will hallow my name. Uh, They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, it it is that desire for God's name, his reputation to be held in such honor that people far and wide come to stand in awe of him to recognize him and his greatness and his glory. And these are things that we are to pursue in prayer. This is what God wants to be on our heart as we pursue him. Now, uh, some of us wear Raptors jerseys. Uh, Some of us wear Toronto Blue Jays baseball caps. And we do that because we're proud of our team. We think that Our team is so great, we want other people to enjoy the greatness of our team. We we think that people's lives would be blessed if they would only watch and support and cheer for our our team the way we do. And yet, if it's a Toronto team, you know that most seasons, most years, our teams aren't often worthy of the glory that we ascribe to them. Uh, We we cheer them on anyway, and we... we, uh, try to draw others into the celebration, but it's with a recognition that they sometimes aren't so great. Sometimes they aren't worthy of the glory. 
And yet, as God invites us to enter into that celebration of his glory, as he calls us to do what we do for our sports teams and our passions and our, the things that we love, as we lift up his name and pursue his glory with that, with that same kind of reverence, we do so with the recognition that he is always worthy, that he is always one to, to uh, in, enter into that celebration of who he is. There is no disappointment. And so God's name is worth hallowing. His reputation is worthy, and so we are to pray for it. We are to seek it in prayer. Pursuing God's agenda in prayer also means praying for his will to be done. In verse 10, the prayer is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer recognizes that God's kingdom is resisted by the kingdoms of this world. That God's desire is to, to, to take what makes heaven heavenly and to bring it to pass here on this earth. And yet that will of his is resisted. The, the desires of God, the, the, the expressions of God's goodness and reign are resisted in this world. And so we have wars and murder, rape and greed. The things in our lives that cause us pain, and misery, and we recognize that these are manifestations of this resistance to God's kingdom and his will. And so we are to pray for this conformity to God's will that, that exists in heaven that we will one day enjoy with him in glory, but in our experience is resisted in this life. I think that we'd all recognize that these are good things, but the question is, how much of us actually pray about these things? How much time do you actually devote to giving yourselves to these priorities of who God is and what God desires? Tim Keller tells the story of one woman in his church who, who came to him and confessed that she spent a lot of time praying, but she found that as she prayed about things, that most of her prayers revolved around her problems and the things that she wanted from God. And as she came away from God, more often than not, she felt worse instead of better. And at one point, she made the decision, I am going to set aside roughly the first 80% of my time in prayer to praising God, to reflecting on God, to giving thanks to God, and to praying about the things that are on the heart of God. And then when I'm done all that, I'll bring my own requests to him. She said that it began to change not only her prayers, but her entire outlook. She said, I suddenly realized the reason I worried and got so upset and scared was because I didn't realize how great God was. By the time I thought about his greatness and his wisdom and all he had done for me, when I got to the time for petition, I just said, here, why am I worried? Here, take it, Lord. And it began to change who she saw, what she saw in herself, what she saw in her world, and most importantly, what she saw in her God. If your prayers don't start with God and his agenda, you may just be talking to yourself. 
So prayer is about pursuing God's agenda, not him pursuing mine. It's also about more about today's needs than it is about tomorrow's wants. That prayer is intended to teach us and to train us in a day-by-day reliance on a God who loved us, loves us and wants to provide for us. But it's more about today's needs than it is about tomorrow's wants. Now, in verse 11, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, some of you prefer rice over bread, and others of you are gluten-free, and you're just trying to avoid carbs. But as you come to a, a verse like this and a request for daily bread, it is a representation of all of our basic needs. All of the things that we know we need, God knows that we need, and he is pleased to provide for us. It's probably intended to remind us of the manna that God fed Israel in the desert. He, he deliberately gave them one day's portion every day in order that they might learn to trust him with tomorrow's portion. In, in providing for, for one day at a time, he was training them to trust in him and to consciously look to today and to focus on today and to trust him with what would come tomorrow. And this is not that there's anything wrong with planning. It's not that there's anything wrong with, with thinking about the future, but we are to trust God with our future. And our, our prayers for today are to uh, focus on our needs for today. Later in this same chapter, Jesus will say, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Praying about today's needs and consciously in prayer, separating what it is that I need for today from that which that I want for tomorrow it is a process of learning to trust and rely upon God. And it helps us to live out Jesus' teaching here and walk in the peace that he wants for us. Now the pray for, prayer for daily bread reminds us to pray about our physical needs. But Maybe you're thinking, like Paul, in the first century, maybe people had to pray about their daily bread, but like, I go to Costco and get like a week's worth of shopping in my refrigerator. I've got a pantry full of food. Like, this just isn't a very practical prayer for me. But maybe that's the point. For many of us, the idea of praying for daily bread just seems like, well, I, I've never needed to worry about that. But a problem in our modern society is that we have gotten so used to having all of our needs abundantly provided for that we, we take that for granted. We don't think about that. We don't pray about that. And we just obsess over the things that we want and the things that we don't have and the things that other people have. And we are more discontented than ever. A prayer for daily bread is to recognize that for God to provide for my daily needs is a cause for great thankfulness, deep gratitude. It should stir in me a contentment and a recognition that, yeah, there may be wants that I have, but God in prayer is calling me to focus on my needs and to recognize what a generous God he is, what a gracious God he is. It also helps us to understand some of the no's that we get when we pray. 
It's not that God doesn't care about our wants. It's not that we can't pray about some of our wants. But often we can't tell the difference between our needs and our wants. And prayer helps us often to discern that. Our assumption is always more has to be good. But sometimes we can't handle more. Sometimes we, we can't deal with more. And, and in prayer, when we focus on our needs for today and we trust God with our wants for, to know, for tomorrow, it, it is with a recognition that he will help us to discern between the two and he, better than ourselves, knows what is ultimately best for us. Proverbs 30 contains a prayer that most of us uh, seldom, if ever, pray. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. A lot of people can't handle more. A lot of people, more is just dangerous, spiritually dangerous. And and we trust in prayer that God will help us to discern what, What are my needs and what are my wants and what is ultimately best for me? What what can I not really handle? And we trust God with those things and and it's only in prayer that we can discern those things. So we trust God when we pray about our physical needs. We also trust when we pray about our spiritual needs. In verse 12, Jesus teaches us to ask God for forgiveness. He, he talks about our debts here, but our debts here are representing these unpaid f- obligations that we have for God for every sin that we have made against him. Jesus is calling us to confession of sin, to a recognition of where we have missed the mark, and to recognize that those sins are, while often directed against people, they are ultimately directed against him. Often, though, even as Christians, we assume God's forgiveness. Our our sin doesn't give us pause anymore. Our sin just doesn't feel as sinful anymore. And so we move on. (laughs) We, We focus on our wants and we forget about our debts before God. We don't pause to ask for the forgiveness that only he can give. And when we do that, it gives us a distorted image of God. It gives us a distorted image of of ourselves and how good we are. And, 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 And it begins to affect how we relate to others as well. In in the the prayer continues in verse 13 with it with the request, lead us not into temptation. It's been a much debated uh, uh, request, probably the most uh, troubling part of this entire prayer and it has made headlines over the last uh, year or two. But it, it's not that God's often, he, it's not that God's tempting us all of the time, and this is a prayer, God, please stop that. You, you keep tempting me to sin. Because James 1.13 tells us that God, in fact, doesn't tempt us to sin. Probably what's going on in this passage is what's a figure of speech called a litote. In saying, lead us not into temptation, the sense is, 
don't lead me there, but instead lead me as far as possible in the other direction. It's, it's a, a, a prayer to ask God to lead me out of situations where I'll be tempted and instead lead me into situations where I will grow and I will be, I will be strengthened and I will mature and I will pursue righteousness. Take me there, Lord. And take me as far away as possible from these places and lead me to a place where my righteousness can be strengthened. It reminds us of Jesus in the garden where he urges his disciples to pray. Uh, he says in Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know that the same Jesus who asked that of his disciples repeatedly, he went and he prayed and sweat drops of blood in his earnest seeking of God. And in that earnest seeking of the will of his father, he received power and strength. And he was the one who, even at the pain of death, was faithful to the end. The disciples who heard this urging of Jesus, who heard the call to watch and pray, who were told that their flesh was weak, those same disciples kept falling asleep and they were the ones who abandoned Jesus and denied him. And the message is that we, we are powerless against the enemy if we will not pray. We are, are sitting ducks to his attacks if we will not pursue the power that God would give us in prayer. I find that most people pray very earnestly about their physical needs, but when it comes to these spiritual needs, just not a, as big a part of the agenda. It just doesn't get the same kind of prominence. But as we, be, as we really begin to pray the disciples' prayer, rather than just repeat it, it will, we will pray against the temptations that we face. We will pray against the sins that, that beset us. We will spend time in confession and repentance. We will seek God's power to seek the will of God in our own lives. Now, the final lesson from the disciples' prayer is that prayer is about giving the grace that we've received. Time spent in the presence of a good and gracious God should begin to change how we relate to others. What we have received from him then gets translated into the relationships that are dearest to us. Prayer is about giving the grace the way we've received it. Now in verse 12, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. We looked at that already, but he, he continues, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the message is that if we have truly experienced the grace of God, it will change us. If we have truly received forgiveness, we will in turn be forgiving people. If you've never received true forgiveness, I believe it is almost impossible for you to, to express forgiveness when you have been truly hurt or truly offended. Some of the most moral disciplined, respect, respectable people that I have ever known 
have been the same people who have admitted to me that they are unable to forgive others. And, and, and whenever I hear that, it, it, is a, uh, it is a hint to me that either the person has, has not truly received and experienced and grasped the fullness of the forgiveness of God themselves, or perhaps they have, but somewhere along the lines, they stopped praying, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts. They stopped confessing their sin and admitting their sin and seeking forgiveness for their sin. And as they did, they began to think that, boy, they had made such progress. They were such a great person that they'd kind of earned their way with God. And as they did, it began to create in them a pride and a critical spirit that in turn looked down on others who hadn't lived up to all that they had. And, and so this, this testing of an examination of our own hearts of forgiveness is at the heart of Jesus' prayer for, that we are to offer for forgiveness. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. And what he meant by that was the people who see little of their own sin and so seek little of God's forgiveness have little love to share with others. The flip side is also true, though. When we do come to realize the depth of our own sin and how much God has forgiven us of, how gracious he has been towards us, it does begin to stir in us a love for other people. We draw near. We reach out. We express the forgiveness that we've received. And that changes how we pray. The disciples' prayer teaches us as an expression of that in that if you look very closely at the prayer, there is no prayer for me anywhere in the passage. There is no me, there is no mine. There is no pointing at this one here. The prayer starts with our Father. The requests are for our daily bread and our debts and our debtors. The prayer is to lead us and deliver us. And the message is that true prayer, true prayer to the God of the Bible by a disciple who has been transformed by this grace makes us less selfish, not more. It, it is to turn us outward, not to lead us inward. And so we encourage you, and I encourage myself, to, to, to push our prayers outward. That, that's one of the reasons that we send out a prayer guide to the congregation every week, because we, we know that if you don't know about what's going on in other people's lives, a tendency for all of us is to just pray about me and me and me. And God wants us to move past that. Now, as many of you know, I didn't grow up in church, and I wasn't someone who read the Bible. I didn't have any of that exposure. But one thing that I did have was a father who, from a very young age, would come into my room at night and have and recite the Lord's Prayer with me. I have repeated these words 
many, 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 many times. And in a sense, it was the only religion that I ever knew. But in repeating the words, even as I sought to do so sincerely and faithfully, I never really thought much about the meaning of those words. And the prayer didn't usually transform the inside. It didn't really change how I related to God or how I prayed to God. Even as a Christian and now as a pastor, I find it a battle to come to terms with this even most basic. This is the ABCs of prayer. And yet here I find myself reflecting on this prayer and see how great I often fall so short. I still pray more about me and my agenda than I do about God and his agenda. I still pray more about the things I want for tomorrow than the things I need for today. I still ask God more about my physical needs than I do about my spiritual ones. And I still pray more about me than I do about we. It has been a constant battle since I put my faith in Christ, but it hasn't been a battle without some effect. God has pushed me and nudged me, and as I have taken steps, little tiny steps, to incorporate more and more of the the, the heart of this prayer into how I pray and how I relate to God, it has changed how I see him, it's changed how I see myself, and it's changed how I see other people. And I want more of that for my own life. I want more of that for you. And I want more of that for us as a congregation, and that is a big part of my invitation to you to spend this month with me in pursuing the face of God asking him to make his agenda and his presence and his character and him himself more prominent in our lives. So that in so doing, we become changed people. People who glorify his name, make it holy, lift him up and glorify him in our world. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, you are so different than us. You're holy. You're the God of authority and power, of grace and forgiveness. And we long for you to be glorified in our midst. Help us to see you and to treat you with the awe and reverence that you're worthy of. Teach us to discern our needs from our wants. And help us to be content that you know what's best for us. Deal with our sins, Father. Guide us in righteousness. Show us how much we need your forgiveness. And help us to offer it to others. For we ask you in the name of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.